Uh, thanks uh, very much. I feel like I'm following Moses to the podium. That was a, a stunning presentation. You know, one of uh, the intense pleasures of travel, as I'm sure many of you have discovered, is the opportunity to live amongst those who have not forgotten the old ways, who still feel their past in the wind, touch it in stones polished by rain, taste it in the bitter leaves of plants. These are all images from a new book of mine called Light at the Edge of the World. Just to know that jaguar shamans still journey beyond the Milky Way or the myths of the Inuit elders still resonate with meaning is to remember the central revelation of anthropology. And that is the idea that the world in which we live in doesn't exist in some absolute sense, but is just one model of reality, the consequence of one set of intellectual and spiritual choices that our lineage made, albeit successfully, many generations ago. But whether it's the Rindili pastoral nomads of the deserts of northern Kenya, or the voodoo acolytes in Haiti, the yak herders on the slopes of Shomalungma, the goddess mother of the world in Tibet, or indeed the Arial women of Mount Masabat in Kenya, the sadhus of Bhaktapur, or indeed the temple guardians of Cambodia, all of these people teach us that there are other ways of being, other ways of thinking, other ways of relating to the earth itself. And that's an idea that can only fill you with hope. Now, what do I mean by other realities, other ways of being? Well, take this example of the Ica and Kohi of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, an isolated volcanic massif that rises from the Caribbean coastal plain. In a bloodstained continent, the only people that were, in, in a sense, never conquered by the Spanish. Descendants of the ancient Tyrona civilization which carpeted the Caribbean coastal plain at the time of contact, they retreated in the wake of the Holocaust higher and higher up into these mountains where to this day they remain ruled by a ritual priesthood. But the training for the priesthood is rather astonishing. The young acolytes are taken away from their families at two and three, sequestered in a shadowy world of darkness for 18 years two nine-year periods that are deliberately chosen to mimic the nine months of gestation they spend in their natural mother's womb, now they are metaphorically in the womb of the great mother. And for that entire time, they are enculturated in the values of their society, values that main the maintain the proposition that their prayers and their prayers alone maintain the ecological or the cosmic balance. And after this arduous initiation, they're suddenly let out before light. And for the first time, the world is revealed in all of its pure beauty, and what has until then been a pure abstraction is suddenly a concrete reality. And in that crystal moment of awareness, the first light, the priest who has trained him, the acolyte, steps back and with his body language essentially, essentially sees, you see, it is that beautiful, it is that wondrous. Traveling down the length of the Andes, you become enamored of this relationship between landscape, spirit, and character. No place more so than the high village of Chinchero outside of Cusco, Peru. And in a study of the plant known to the Inca as the divine leaf of immortality, I once was fortunate to travel the length and breadth of the Andean Cordillera, always looking for this relationship to landscape. And it's important to realize that it's not a kind of Thoreauian or even Rousseauian relationship. Uh, Thoreau could only speak about the wild the way he did because he never saw anything remotely wild in his life. 
Indigenous people are neither sentimental nor are they weakened by nostalgia, but they have nevertheless forged through time and ritual a traditional mystique of the earth that is based not on a self-conscious idea of being close to it, but on a far subtler intuition. And that is the idea that the earth itself can only exist because it is breathed into being by human consciousness. And this plays itself out in ritual, whether it's a coca diviner who can view the future like a soothsayer in divination on the back of the sacred leaves, a skill that can only be possessed by someone who has successfully survived a lightning strike and become a tirokuna. Or in one of the most dramatic examples is the annual running of the sacred boundaries of the community, where the fastest young boy in each hamlet dresses up in the deportment of a woman, and becoming the transvestite figure or the wailaka and carrying the sacred banners, he leads all able-bodied men on an extraordinarily arduous race around the perimeter of the community lands, down to the base of the sacred mountain Antakilka, and up around a trajectory which is marked by holy places or itos or mohones, where prayers are uttered, coca is given to Pachamama, and the people themselves, through ritual, become a community. And I participated last February in this race, and it was an extraordinarily arduous affair because you actually run to the base of Antakilka from 11,500 feet. You then rise 3,000 feet, drop to the bottom of the other side of the mountain 4,000 feet, ascend another 4,000-foot ridge, and 25 kilometers like this all the way around. By the end of the day, the individuals emerge less as human beings and in some sense as spirit beings who have reaffirmed through gesture and ritual prayer their sense of place in the landscape. This gives you a sense of the power of community, and if there's one chasm that exists between the Western world and the world of these indigenous peoples, amongst whom I find myself spending so much time, it is a cult of the individual, which of course was a sociological equivalent of the splitting of the atom. If we drop now into the Amazon itself, you'll find other societies equally extraordinary in their adaptation. The Barasana, for example, a people of the Anaconda who believe that metaphysically and mythologically they came up the Milk River from the east in sacred canoes dragged behind the great Anaconda and were regurgitated in the various affluents of the Amazon. So, for example, the Barasana live so closely with their forests that cognitively they do not distinguish the color green from the color blue because the canopy of the heavens is equated to the canopy of the forest. Or the canoe people of the Oronoco Delta, the Winikina Warao, people who never hold a stone in their hands because they live in these flood floors which are permanently inundated, and before a child can walk, he learns to paddle a dugout canoe across the vast expanses of that beautiful delta. And of course, it is within the lowlands that you see the most perfect fluorescence of the shamanic art of healing. And we have a kind of a groovy notion of the shaman as a kind of a benign grandfather figure who shakes feathers and beads. I've never met a shaman who wasn't a little psychotic. Uh, that's their job. They're the ones who, as Joseph Campbell would say, uh, swim in the mystic waters the rest of us want to ignore. They're the ones who seek these remarkable places where they can affect their deeds of healing. And the most extraordinary society I ever lived with in the Amazon were the Warani, the people of the forest, once known pejoratively as the Alka, a Quechua word meaning barbarian or savage. 
They were first contacted peacefully in 1958. In 1957, five missionaries attempted contact and made a fatal mistake. They dropped from the air eight by 10 glossy photographs of what we would say were photographs of themselves in friendly gestures. But they forgot that these people of the forest had never seen anything two-dimensional in their lives. And they looked behind the face to try to find the form to the figure, found nothing, and concluded that these were calling cards from the devil, and so promptly speared the five missionaries to death. They also had a perspicacious knowledge of the forest, which was extraordinary. Their hunters could smell animal urine at 40 paces and tell you what species of life had left it behind. They were also an astonishingly healthy people at the time of contact, with no vector diseases, no common cold, not even any secondary bacterial infections. Now, they did not have a pleasant or an easy life, and one of the things that anthropologists are sometimes accused of is of embracing an extreme relativism, as if the uh, acts of the Nazis could be somehow rationalized because after all they had an ethnicity and an ideology and spoke a certain language. All of these cultures that I've begun to allude to create in some sense an intellectual and uh, spiritual web of life that is around the planet in the same sense that the biosphere encircles the planet. You might define the ethnosphere as a sum total of all thoughts and dreams and ideas and beliefs intuitions, myths brought into being by the human imagination since the dawn of consciousness. And the ethnosphere is being eroded at a far greater rate than indeed is the biosphere. No biologist would dare suggest that 50% of all species are moribund or on the brink of extinction. And yet that, the most apocalyptic scenario in the realm of biological diversity, represents what we know to be the most optimistic uh, scenario in the realm of cultural diversity. And the great indicator of that, as Nina suggested, is language loss. When each one of you were born, there were 6,000 languages spoken on Earth. Now, a language is not just a body of vocabulary uh, or a set of grammatical rules. It's a flash of the human spirit. It's a vehicle through which the soul of a culture comes into the material world. Every language is, in some sense, an entire ecosystem of ideas a watershed of thought, an old-growth forest of the mind. And of those 6,000 languages, as we speak, fully half are not being taught to schoolchildren, which means that effectively they're already dead. And every two weeks, somewhere, somewhere on the planet, someone it becomes the last of their, language, their people to speak a language. And so we're living through this period of extraordinary condensation, which is of great concern to anthropologists. So anthropologists don't attempt to eliminate judgment, only to suspend it. And the anthropological lens is most useful when turned onto those situations uh, that in which a people, despite the richness of their traditions, have been unjustly pilloried for beliefs that the outsiders fail to understand. And no place can epitomize that more than Haiti. When I was first given the assignment to go to Haiti to try to find the formula of the reputed folk preparations used in the zombie phenomenon, I had to put aside all of my preconceptions about this remarkable place and this remarkable religion. It's interesting, if I asked you to name the great religions of the world, what would you say? Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever. There's always one continent left out, sub-Saharan Africa, the tacit assumption being that African people had no religion. Well, of course, by ethnographic fact, they did. And all voodoo is, is a distillation of very profound religious ideas that came over during the tragic diaspora and became sown in the fertile soil of the New World. Voodoo is not a black magic cult, quite to the contrary. It's a complex metaphysical worldview. It's a dynamic religion in which the believer uh, has a faith in the power of the spirits, and indeed the 
human being gives birth to the spirits and at the same time can invoke those spirits through the power of chants and drums and the, and, and, and the prayers. And of course, having invoked the spirit from beneath the great water, the spirit momentarily displaces the soul of the living so that for that brief shining moment, the acolyte actually becomes the Godhead. Indeed, the voodooists often say that white people go to church and speak about God, and we dance in the temple and become God. And in a state of spirit possession, which is the hand of divine grace, not a moment of social pathology, you'll see that incredible feats occur, the handling of burning embers with impunity, for example, an astonishing uh, case of the ability of the mind to affect the body that bears it. And voodoo is not an animistic faith, but the people do believe that the spirits are wise enough to dwell in places of great natural beauty. The acolytes are drawn to those places in the spirit that we go to a cathedral. We don't worship the building. We go there to be in the presence of God. Now, there is sorcery in voodoo. To ask why there is sorcery in voodoo is to ask why there's evil in the universe. And when Lord Krishna was asked that, he responded to thicken the plot. In other words, every religion has a notion of light and darkness. We have it in Christianity in the fallen archangel who becomes a devil and the Christ child who is a son of God. And in pursuing the zombie preparation, of course, I was walking down that thin, narrow line of darkness, which is surrounded by the luminosity of the faith. The sorcerers make a powder which can induce apparent death, and the preparation itself is enveloped in incredibly complex ritual. But the most important point of all is that I was able to show that this phenomenon of the Haitian zombie, which had been dismissed in an explicitly racist way, not only existed, but it had a purpose within the society. It turned out to be a form of social sanction invoked by secret societies, which much as the secret societies of equatorial West Africa, these societies in Haiti are the most powerful arbiter of social and political life. I always wanted to live with the people wet with the innocence of birth. I always wanted to live with nomads because we all once were nomads, wanderers on a pristine planet. It was only with the Neolithic Revolution that we succumbed to the cult of the seed and began to create hierarchy and surplus and sedentary village life. But for most of our million years of human history, uh, we were wanderers on a pristine planet. And nomadic societies are profoundly different. The Panan are a people of the rainforest of the northern third of Borneo. Uh, at one point, they were 30,000 strong, totally dependent on the forests of the hinterland. The rivers themselves were the domain of the Dayak headhunters, who, in order to marry, had to present to a prospective father-in-law the severed head of an enemy. And too often, those heads were Panan. So Panan fled into the forest, where for generations they lived on the bounty of that forest, dependent on it for every aspect of the material well-being. Now, nomads are profoundly different. There is no incentive to create material accumulation because everything has to be carried on your back. So quite literally, the measure of wealth in a nomadic society is the strength of the social relationships amongst people. Sharing becomes an involuntary reflex because you never know who will be the next to bring home the food for the table. And of course, in the Penan homeland, traditionally everything came from the forest itself, whether it was the water gathered in bamboo tubes, or in this case, the fish gathered with these extraordinary ichthyotoxic fish which stun the fish and they float to the surface and you'll be readily harvested. A woman weaving a mat from rattan palm and a young child returning with the head of a bearded pig, food that will feed the community for weeks. And for all of their history, the Penan responded to the sounds of the forest. Nomadic peoples, being in a non-literate oral tradition, looked to nature. In fact, in a nomadic society, in an oral tradition, the entire 
richness of the language is simply the vocabulary of the best storyteller. And responding to the sounds of the forest, the Penan survived for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But what I found was not a land wet with the innocence of birth, but a land where there was no place in that Penan homeland free of the sound of machinery. You heard so much about the deforestation of the Amazon in the 1980s. At that time, Brazil produced 3% of the tropical whole log exports of the world. Malaysia produced close to 60%, almost all of it from Sarawak and Sabah, and the homeland of the Dayak peoples, including the Penan. So in a single generation, the Penan saw roads pierce the wild heart of the homeland. And bewildered, they found themselves living on the edge of logging camps, uh, watching the, uh, the rivers that once ran clear carry away the silt of a continent, of an island continent, uh, to the South China Sea, where the Japanese freighters hang light on the horizon, ready to fill their holds with the raw logs ripped from the heart of Borneo. You see young children sequestered in settlement camps where they are forcibly brought in to get them off the land to avoid them being a nuisance to the Malaysian government. And the Penan, in a rather extraordinary way, beginning in the mid-80s, said enough was enough. And what began as a quixotic gesture, blowpipes against bulldozers, they blockaded their logging roads and for a time shut down all of logging in Sarawak. It was a quixotic gesture. Uh, and one that electrified the international environmental community, but of course it did not last. And in 1998, I returned to Sarawak on behalf of the National Geographic and found myself living amongst the eight people who were the last nomadic Penan in Sarawak. And this sense touches upon the dark undercurrent of my presentation this morning, and that is the fact that the 20th century will not be remembered for its wars or its technological innovations, but it's going to be the remembered as the era in which we stood back and either actively endorsed or passively accepted the massive destruction of both biological and cultural diversity on the planet. The problem, I must stress, is not change. Change is the one constant in history. Anthropologists have no interest in sequestering indigenous people in wild refugia like some kind of biological specimens. Change is the one constant. And it's not technological innovation. A Kiowa does not cease being a Kiowa when he gives up the bow and arrow any more than an American ceases being an American when they give up the horse and buggy. It's neither technology that change or change that threatens these people. It's a crude face of power and domination. These societies are not quaint and colorful, reduced to the margins of history as the world moves inexorably forward. These societies are dynamic, vibrant cultures that in every case are driven out of existence by forces beyond their capacity to adapt to. Whether it's the egregious deforestation of Sarawak, the poisoning of the fertile soils of the Ogoni, or in the case of Tibet, the domination of the Chinese. I've been traveling a great deal in Tibet recently, and of course all of you know that since the 1959 conquest, 1.2 million Tibetans have been killed. 6,000 ancient temples, uh, sites of veneration and wisdom have been reduced to riprap and dust. And yet despite this, as many of you know, the spirit of the Tibetans soars, the Dharma is pursued, and as Milarepa said, in time all will come back around. And I want to close this morning with a return to a more positive story, a story from my own homeland of Canada, where the Canadian government, in a remarkable gesture of restitution, has established a territory the size of Texas and California for the Inuit people. It's known as Nunavut, the homeland. And Canada has not always 
Canada has not always been kind to the, the Inuit. In fact, during the 1950s, in an effort to establish Canadian sovereignty, we obliged the Inuit to move into settlements. I recorded when I was narwhal hunting at the tip of Baffin Island a remarkable story from this man on the right, Olayak, uh, of his grandfather who refused to go into settlements. Now remember that for the Inuit, blood on ice was not a sign of death, it was an affirmation of life. The cold was not something to be feared, something to be taken advantage of. And Olayak's father refused to go into the settlements, and so the family took away his tools and his implements, hoping that it would oblige him to enter the settlements. Did it? No. He simply stepped outside into an arctic night and in the darkness pulled down his trousers and defecated into his hand. And as the feces froze, he shaped it into a blade. He put a spray of saliva along the edge and as a shit knife took form, he butchered a dog. He skinned the dog with it and made a harness. He took the rib cage of the dog and made a sled and harnessing up an adjacent dog, he disappeared over the ice flows. <laughs> Talk about getting by with nothing. So in the end, I think it's important to recognize that, as Margaret Mead said, her biggest nightmare was that as we drifted towards a monochromatic world of monotony from a polychromatic world of diversity, we would drift into this blandly amorphous generic world culture in which the whole human spirit and soul was reduced to a single modality. And her greatest nightmare, of course, is that we would wake us from a dream and forget that there had ever even been any other options. And I think this really is the challenge of our time because if we realize for a moment that we are not the paragon of human potential, there is no trajectory of progress. If a Martian anthropologist was to arrive on Earth today and take the measure of our civilization, if, if the measure was technological prowess, he would see marvelous things. But if there are other criteria, he might stand aside. If, for example, he took notice of the fact that 20% of the people controlled 80% of the wealth. If he looked at the fact that even though we honor the institution of marriage, half of them end in divorce and only 6% of us have our elders living amongst us. If we looked at the fact that we embrace an obscene slogan like 24-7, implying as it does the end of the family, uh, yet it would explain, of course, why the average American father spends 18 minutes a day in direct communication with his children. So, it, not to mention, of course, the propensity we have to rip down the ancient forest, tear holes in the heavens, and change the biochemistry of the entire planet. So, in other words, we are not the paragon of human potential. We are one facet of the human repertoire, one facet of the human diamond. And in the end, we need the visions of these other peoples, just like we need the richness of the biological worlds in which they live, because for all of us, they stand apart as symbols of the naked geography of hope. Thanks very much.